Good afternoon, virtual audience. Good afternoon, all of you who've been kind enough to come out on a Saturday and join us. I'm sad about the Diamondbacks not winning the third game. I was really hoping they would go to Philadelphia one game up, but so it is. But anyway, for you're not a football fan, you're here, right? So I'd like to introduce you to, you can guess which one is Beth and which one is Boyd. And they are brother and sister. And um, some of you may know Boyd because he was here for several books that he co-wrote with Clive Kessler in the Oregon Files series. And then he also wrote thrillers of his own. And Beth has such an interesting resume. Maybe, Beth, you should just tell everybody what you do, because I'll probably blow it if I try. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm hoping this mic is working, so people, perfect, lovely. So um, I'm Beth Morrison, and I have my PhD in medieval art history, and I am senior curator of manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Museum, and I'm just about to celebrate my 28th anniversary at the Getty. As I always say, uh, the child labor laws were a lot more lenient back when I started. Um, um, and it is absolutely the best job in the world. I get to go around um, to Europe and buy manuscripts and write other kinds of books, nonfiction books. Um, but I have to say that writing with Boyd has been an amazing experience. And it's so much more fun than writing nonfiction books because if I don't find it out, I just get to make it up. <laughs> So how do you feel about that? Oh, I, I always love making us making stuff up. It's much easier than, but we do actually a lot of research for our books because um, Beth is my ringer for getting all of the the historical elements right because I would never have written a book that takes place in 1351 in Europe, um, right after the Black Death and during the Hundred Years' War if I didn't have Beth with me because I, I didn't know much about it at all, and I still I'm still learning a lot. And so whenever we have an issue about you know what's happening in history or e even simple things like where did they sleep when they're traveling and and what kind of food are they eating and what kind of clothes do they wear? I just, I didn't know. I'm much better at the figuring out how to kill people. Yeah. So we make a good team. <laughs> you guys do make a good team. And Boyd talked to me for a long time about this project while he was still writing for Clive. Um, and so I kind of wondered how it was all going to, it seemed like an odd transition. But as it turns out, basically what we have is a sort of swashbuckling, scholarly <laughs> medieval book, which is really a lot of fun. And in the first one, The Lawless Land, which I don't have up here, um, but we have plenty of copies of it, uh, one of the joys of it is that we got to go to Mont Saint-Michel, which is a wonderful place. And um, so the geography, I think, in your books is really well done. This one, we're in Italy, but let's go back and talk for the benefit of those who haven't seen or read The Lawless Land. Why don't you guys talk about that one first? Um, Boyd always does the summaries of our novels, so I'm going to hand it back to him. Oh, well. <laughs> so in, in The Lawless Land, an excommunicated knight has lost his land and his um, his reputation and his title, and he is trying to to gain them back and get justice for the crime that's been done against him. And he's on the road in England and comes across a woman who is fleeing her brutal fiance. And they find out they have a common enemy. And so they go on the run together from very powerful figures who are after a very 
uh, after a priceless object in their possession. And what, what kind of object is that, Beth? So I told Boyd that I wasn't going to do this project with him unless a medieval manuscript would be at the center of the plot of the first book. And so I had to figure out what kind of medieval manuscript, if it was found, could actually change the course of history in Europe. And so it was really fun. I got to design the, the cover and the illuminations inside and everything. It was super fun. Yeah, and, and so we actually um, traveled to England, France, and Italy. Uh, the two of us and my wife um, always go together to do this research. And, and we plot out the books beforehand to some degree to know where we wanted to go visit. And then when we go to these places, we, we see a lot of things that just didn't occur to us, like the, the Mont Saint-Michel, the, the quicksand uh, features into the story. Yeah, and so one of the things that's really great is that we, when we do uh, the tours for these books, both the first one and this one, we actually go in the same order that our characters are going to go. And a lot of these places we've picked because neither of us have been there. We want a research trip. <laughs> and so we're really encountering these places for the first time ourselves and kind of seeing them through our characters' eyes. And so um, Boyd looks for the potentials for explosions and things to kill. And I look at the artworks and how to incorporate them into the book. Mont Saint Michel, have any of you been there? Yay. Well, it's perfect for what you wanted to do. Um, if you haven't heard about it, it is um, not exactly a peninsula, but anyway, Mont Saint Michel is built on a giant rock out um, in the, what is it, the channel, isn't it? Because it's near Saint Malo. It, generally, if you're traveling, they dock at Saint Malo and then you go to Mont Saint Michel. And there are very treacherous sands all around it. So forever it was protected by um, the sands. And if you didn't know the tide, people would very often get trapped and drowned. Now today with tour buses, there's a causeway. Although, you know, all the mysteries, you could still gratuitously go out there and drown yourself, but um, <laughs> but they don't expect tourists to figure out the tide flow. But anyway, it rises up. So, um, and there's a wonderful, because it, it's part of your book, describe the mechanism at the, at, you know, the, the wonderful wheel in on the whole bit, because it's really a very cool medieval device. Yeah, there's a, um, you can see it when you're walking up to the island that there's this very steep ramp and there's this gigantic cart connected to a rope that they could lower down to the base of the island and because the monastery is perched far, far above and walking up to it takes quite a long time and, and just carrying supplies would have been um, very difficult. So they had this cart where they could pack things onto it and then they had a hamster wheel, basically, that that is human-sized. And so um, it's called a windlass. And people would walk in this hamster wheel, and it would wind the rope and whatever the rope was pulling up. And so that's how they would bring supplies up to the monastery and lower food down to the pilgrims and people who had come to, to visit. And so, of course, as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, how can we turn this in? To an it's action an explosion. scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's ideal. Actually, it's still there and still in working condition. I mean, it's remarkable how well this um, medieval, when was it built? Do you know? Do you well, know? that's in dispute because we, we had two different stories, actually. We, the tour guide who took us around said it was built in the medieval times, but then we had read another story that said it was actually built when it, um, Mont Saint-Michel was turned into a prison in, I think, in the Napoleonic era. 
And um, so nobody knows for sure, which is great for us because then we can just make it up. But no, I didn't mean the windlass. I mean the oh. monastery. Oh, itself. the monastery. I think yeah. it was built it's been there since the eighth century. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's a very, very old. And one of the things that's interesting about when we do these travels is that one of my big jobs before we go on all these travels is to figure out what was there in 1351 and not in 1352 in every single place we visit. And a lot of the things we can't really tell um, which the things, but a lot of it is very well documented. In fact, especially in Italy. Um, and we would be like, oh, that was built in, you know, 1352. Darn, you know, we can't use it. But that's one of the things is in these travels is that we have to subtract out everything that wasn't there in our time period. And that's hard to do. But it's still surprising how much was there and, and is still there 670 years later, which is why we like to feature places that you can still go visit to this day and imagine what the, that they would have seen almost the same thing in their time period. Yeah, for some of the cities, it's more like Siena in Italy, which features in this book. It really does look exactly almost as how it would have looked in 1351 because Siena in Italy, has everybody been there? You should go. It's fabulous. Um, but the city basically died with the Black Death in 1348. And so basically what you see there is exactly what they would have seen in the 14th century. So we try to pick cities where a lot of the existing um, architecture, um, and you know, we fantasize about someday when you know, we have tour groups going through trying to do the Beth and Boyd, you know, <laughs> Tales of the Lawless Land tour, so. So you can see, even though I've said that's a swashbuckling adventure, there's really serious scholarship. Beth is not cutting any slack to the actual facts. Um, and, and that, you know, makes it fun um, to read them. And at the same time, you know that you're, you know, it's the real deal in terms of the events and what happens. So I had the privilege of reading the manuscript of The Lawless Land before it got turned into a book. And we had a brisk discussion about how it might end. I won, <laughs> and um, and when you read it, I think you'll be very glad that I did. Um, and now, now we're moving on with the cast to the Last Templar. Now that is a really terrible. I've always thought a really terrible story. The King of France was both greedy and corrupt, and the Pope was weak. And take it from there, Beth. So um, a lot of people ask me who are not familiar with the Middle Ages, they think the Templars are just made up, but they they were a real order of knights in the Middle Ages. And um, as Barbara mentioned, um, they were in coots kind of with the French king. They became so wealthy, in fact, that the French king began to borrow money from the Templars because they were so wealthy themselves. And at the end, he couldn't pay them back. And so what do you do? You decide that they're all heretics and you burn them at the stake and you don't have to pay back any of your debts. And so they did have a very bad ending and that bad ending is the very beginning of our book. This was at 1305, wasn't it? When they were all burned in the wherever it was in the square. Your book takes takes place later than that, but yeah. that's the when the Templar the, the the famous lost treasure of the Templar kind of arises from the execution they were burned at the stake. Um, anybody who'd read Hillary Mantle and, you know, know what happened to people who got wealthier than Henry VIII, or if you know your history of France and you know that Vaudevicant uh, was an estate built in the financial minister of France made the mistake of inviting Louis XIV to visit, uh, which was a real mistake. And that's where Versailles was inspired. Louis thought, well, if he can do Vaudevicant, I can build a bigger, better palace. 
So it's never a good idea to be more powerful and richer than the king. Yeah, and the Templars were really the first international bankers. They they invented the medieval version of the ATM. Um, they they got their money because pilgrims who were on their way to the Holy Land kept getting robbed, and so it was they founded their order to protect the pilgrims on the way to the Holy Land. And of course, the reason they were getting robbed was because they had to take so much money because it took so many months to get to the Holy Land. So they invented this new system whereby you were in Paris, you would give them your money, and they would give you a letter of credit. Credit, the first letters of credit, and then you would travel to the Holy Land, you would present that letter of credit, and then they would give you money. So it really was a medieval version of the ATM. If you happen to die along the way, maybe they got to keep your money, maybe they charge you a small amount of money for change fees and whatnot. And so that's how they became the wealthiest organization in Europe at that time period, which inspired inspired the, the banking system in Florence. Um, so, of course, the, the most famous bankers in Florence were the de' Medici's. They came al al along a little after the time period of our books, so we kind of just fast-forwarded the, the banking industry um, development in our story, and so the, the main uh, villain in our story is, is basically a precursor of the Medici's and kind of shows how he would have built his empire uh, in in this story based on what he knew about the Templars. And that's really where they got the idea of changing money and investing and getting income from investments. And that's how they how Florence became so rich for the Renaissance. So why are why are trusty knights and company? Why are they actually there in Italy? So they, um, I don't want to give away the end of the first book, but they are uh, now traveling through central Italy trying to decide how they are going to work as, as a, a couple basically on the run as, as knight errant. And um, they come across a woman who is uh, under attack by a band of marauders in a small town in central Italy. And they, of course, come to her aid and help her escape. And they find out that um, her father, who was the last true Templar, left her a series of codes that would lead her to the fabled lost treasure of the Templars that they hid away so that the king of France wouldn't find the bulk of their money. And so... To to she she finds that um, I, I won't name who's after her, but she to save her life she has to find the treasure and and our our main characters have to help her because they're in danger as well, and so they go on this quest across Italy trying to solve a series of puzzles that depend on the art and architecture of. Siena and other cities in Italy, that, and and we a lot of times use actual art and architecture, again that would have been there at the time of our story, but you can still go and see to this day. And it was actually really fun because um, the last true Templar dies in like 1314, and our book doesn't take place till 1351. So he thought that his daughter was going to solve these clues right around the time he made them in 1314. So our characters are encountering art and architecture, which of course has changed since 1314. And Boyd and I kept getting messed up and being like, wait, was that there then? And we, we thought, oh my gosh, the characters are going to go through the same thing. So we made that a central point of the 
plot is not only do they have to figure out the clues, but they have to solve the clues as if it was 40 years earlier. So it really became really fun. Um, and, and just, you know, Boyd actually writes the books. Um, you know, we work out the plots and I help him with all the medieval stuff, but he really does the writing because he's the expert. Um, but I got to write the clues for this one. So I actually have some little bit of writing in this one, which is super fun for me. So you all recognize that, you know, a knight errant is a knight who um, who's traveling around looking for dragons to slay, right? Well, no, it is. I mean, that's what he is, right? He's the knight. I mean, it's classic. It's Arthurian, you know, that, that concept of, and, you know, it's the Marvel comics. It's the same thing. It's Superman and, you know, Spider-Man and Batman and all. We have never really lost our um, appreciation for stories where the hero is out there to, you know, confound the villain and save us. Well, and even Lee Child has talked about Jack Reacher being a modern knight errant. And, and there are a lot of stories that that are along that tradition, the, the man with no name from the Clint Eastwood Westerns, the Mandalorian is really a knight errant in the future. So it's it's a so we just decided we're going to go back to the origin of the that legend and do a knight errant in the Middle Ages looking for dragons. So I'm hoping that in book three or four there will be a dragon. <laughs> right, well, there might be. Right. And it was fun for us because, of course, this was a genre. The thriller genre was invented in the Middle Ages. So we're just going back and and um, doing it from the source. You are. Well, thank you. That's great. Thank so, you. Um, Francine, where are you? You're next because we're moving to the Regency. So, now, as I mentioned to you earlier, this is only book two, and book one is up in the front, The Lawless Land. So, this is your chance to acquire both, which would be wonderful. Hi. Hey. So, Francine writes her historical novels as Stephanie Barron. But since I know her as Francine, I'm going to call her Francine. And if I've confused you, I'm sorry. But if I try to call her Stephanie, I'll just blow it. Right? Absolutely. Right. So we realize we've been together for 30 years. Wow. From Jane Loose, Austen. Loosely, loosely well, together. Yeah, okay. I live in Denver. She mm -hmm. lives here. But Well, that's true. Yeah. But literarily, we have been on a, a journey together for a very long time through many wonderful books. And this is the 15th. And final Jane Austen mystery, for reasons that Francine will now tell you about, in terms of what happened to Jane, because you have followed Jane's life through her letters all the way through. Yes. So I uh, came up with the idea of this series 30 years ago, which is just terrifying. Um, but I have I have written other books in between these. So there are 15 novels in this series, but the first came out in 1996. I wrote it in 1994. Um, and it began with Jane at age 26. Um, she died at 41 and a half, and that's 15 years, and there are 15 books. Um, I chose 26 as the age to pick up her story because it was the year 1802 in which she both accepted and then rejected a young man named Harris Big Wither uh, and his proposal of marriage. And Harris, she was 26, he was 20. He was just down from Oxford. He was the heir to the estate Many Down Park, which was owned by her very, very good friends, the Big Sisters. <laughs> the big B-I-G-G -G sisters, um, Kitty, Elizabeth, and Althea. 
Um, these women remained Jane's friends throughout her life. Harris, however, was socially awkward. He had a pronounced and severe stutter. Um, he offered her survival, her family some measure of support if she married him. And the fact that he was related to some of her very dear friends was important. So she initially accepted the proposal. 26 in Austin's time was an advanced age to be unmarried. And she was unmarried, not because she was unattractive, she was, but because she had no fortune. And uh, England in 1802 was in the throes of constant warfare, just as it would be up to the point when she died. Um, and so many of the men who might have been of marriageable age for her were either out on the sea, as her two brothers were, as post-captains in the Royal Navy, or they were fighting land wars um, either throughout Europe or in the U.S. eventually in her lifetime, the War of 1812. So her male prospects were dim. She accepts Harris. She goes to bed that night. She wakes up in the morning and rejects him, <laughs> which is a huge social solecism. She and her sister Cassandra had to leave the home of um, the big sisters and go back to their house in Steventon, um, cutting short their visit. They got over the social solecism part, and she did remain friends with the women her, her whole life. So fast forward to 1817, Jane is very ill. I have followed her through every year of the intervening period. She moved a great deal um, because her father dies the women are dependent on her brothers. They're very peripatetic. They're taking lodgings in various towns, Southampton, um, Bath. Um, they finally end up in Chawton, which is a small town in Hampshire, uh, living in a cottage that her one wealthy brother lets them inhabit uh, on one of his estates. And... Um, Jane starts to get ill. She's now published four of her novels. Um, she ends up going to Winchester, which is a town in southern Hampshire, the old royal and ecclesiastical center of southern England. It's a wonderful city. And she goes there in part because her very good friend, Elizabeth Big, who's now the widow of a man named uh, William Heathcote, is living in the cathedral close, which is the walled area of ancient homes. They've now mostly been converted to ecclesiastical buildings affiliated with the cathedral. But at the time, they were given to men who were canons of Winchester, which meant two things, that they were, back when the English church was Catholic, they were clerics affiliated with the old abbey and the cathedral of Winchester, but also they were important in the founding of Winchester College for Boys, which is the oldest public school for boys in England, founded in the 14th century. Eight of Jane Austen's nephews went to Winchester College. So she had a lot of ties to the town. But it's Elizabeth Big Heathcote who finds her a place to live and who puts her in the care of her personal doctor. And when Jane dies a few weeks later, and she's buried in Winchester Cathedral. A lot of people find that odd and are wondering why she wasn't 
buried in her own home. But in July in 1817, you didn't transport bodies. Um, so that was part of it. Part of it was that she had so many connections to the clerical life of Winchester Cathedral. Um, I loved the fact that she, <laughs> I begin the series with her refusing Harris Big Wither, and I end the series with her um, in the heart of the, the Heathcote family, um, because that felt like a really important closure arc for her story. Um, Elizabeth Heathcote had one son, boy named Will Heathcote. She'd been widowed when he was uh, less than a year old. He was a student at Winchester in 1817, 186, well, a couple of years before that as well. So he was a very close friend of Jane's nephew, Edward. And uh, this book concerns Edward, Will Heathcote, Jane, and Elizabeth Heathcote. Um, and the murder and the mystery is set in Winchester College for Boys. So it's very much a sort of academical story and um, a family one as well. And it's about boys coming of age and... Well, it's also, and I think you did a great job, it also is about the brutality of the English public school system and why it was, in fact, partially or perhaps always deliberately designed to toughen up young men so they could be out... Um, Creating Andrew, empire. you're the only you're the only person who's <laughs> actually been to an English boys' public school. So, can you speak to that? Oh, right. Honor. There, there was a certain amount of brutality in in the way. Maybe not when you were there, but in when. Well, one of the interesting things I discovered in reading about Winchester at the time, uh, and I should point out there are numerous contemporaneous accounts of being a schoolboy at Winchester in roughly 1815, um, Anthony Trollope being the most famous person at that time, um, roughly, uh, is that the class system was so terribly important to the running of the school. So the year after this novel takes place, there was a great rebellion at Winchester. Um, rebellions had been going on at the boys' public schools from the late uh, 1700s on up. Um, and they were rebellions that were triggered because the boys felt the masters had absolutely no social precedence over them to discipline them because they outranked them in terms of birth. And so the boys at Winchester barricaded themselves into the dean's rooms, the dean being not the head of the school, but actually affiliated with the cathedral as well as the school in a clerical sense. Um, this dean was a double bishop of the British church. They barricaded him into his room. They uh, basically held him hostage along with the head of the school, Dr. Gable, um, to bring home the point that only the prefects should be allowed to discipline the boys, and the prefects were older boys who were appointed partly because of their birth. So it reinforced this incredible class system of who got to beat whom, essentially, and how discipline was conveyed throughout the ranks of the school. And in writing an account of this rebellion, 
Dr. Gable mentions William Heathcote as having been a boy who stood against the terrible brutality of his time, which suggests he was not sympathetic to the rebellion. So all of this sort of culture was fascinating to me as a background, and the fact that eight of Jane's nephews, including Edward, who was the son of a clergyman, um, were schooled in this sort of world uh, was something I absolutely had to use for the book. <laughs> One of the things that um, I find fascinating about the whole series that starts with Jane and the unpleasantness at Scarborough Manor Scargrave. is... Sorry? Scargrave Manor. Scargrave. Why do I want to... Call? Well, anyway. Everybody All does. Right. I was close. Scargrave Manor. Um, <clears throat> is that Francine has thoroughly acquainted herself with the letters between Jane and and her sister Cassandra, who also who lost her fiancé before they were married, so she too was a lifelong spinster. Um, and so Francine has written the books in those sort of interstices in Jane's life that are not recorded, so she can make up stuff without actually um, Violate, crossing the historical Violating the record, record. Right. yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I mean, and and so she had not exactly a romance, but she had a really interesting relationship during part of the series with one of those unstated agents of the crown. Tasha, this will ring true for you, right? Um, you know, where they're up to like the queen's business, but nobody actually knows about them, and they have private incomes, so they don't have to be paid, and you know, on and on. And that was, I thought that was, you know, nice that you gave her a bit of a... Intrigue. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, somebody that cared about her. I thought it, I thought it was Yes, really I've had readers good. say that I should have her bear Napoleon's love child. Um, <laughs> but I did draw the line at that. Um, so, yeah, the fun thing about playing with history is what you get to make up. Uh, on occasions when I have written novels centered entirely on a particular letter, for example, a book that you're going to read called Jane and the Man of the Cloth, which is the second in the series, she wrote an incredibly detailed letter from Lyme Regis, which is where persuasion is set. Louisa Musgrave falling from the cob. Um, in which she declared, she detailed every person they met, um, their jobs in the town, uh, with whom her mother played whist, uh, whether there was moonlight on a particular night, because you only really went out for social engagements if there was a strong moon in a carriage, so you didn't have difficulty on the road. Uh, she mentioned the... Um, doctor who saw her when she had a cold, so I knew which day of the week she had a cold. She mentioned going bathing in a bathing machine off Charmouth, so I knew the day she went swimming. Um, I had a whole cast of characters handed to me, and I made one of them the murderer and one of them the victim, um, and they're all mentioned in the letter. So if she did write a letter from a place, I tried to scrupulously use it as a sort of template, but all the books are mosaics of fact and fiction. Um, because, of course, they are. <laughs> she she wasn't a detective. If you actually want to see what people wore and what the buildings look like, you can, with and bear, bearing no relationship whatsoever to scholarship or fact, you could watch um, Bridgerton 
or you could watch Sanditon, which I think is getting a second season or something. Um, and I advise you to do that really just for the clothes, which are amazing. Um, but not the hair. The hair in Sanditon no. is all wrong. And they actually, if I remember right, filmed Bridgerton in Ireland and Dublin because it has more Georgian or Regency era buildings than yeah. London, which of course during you know was bombed in the war the whole bit. Um, but it gives you it gives you an idea because fashion is such an important part of, you know, it was a that was world, a, yeah, yeah, and it was also a big time of transition between the you know the formality of the 18th century and the fashion can tell you so much about what's going on. Um, I equated actually the Austin era to the 60s here in the sense, or the 20s, 1920s here, in the sense in which fashion changed, yes, from restrictive, really, really restrictive clothing to very light, flimsy, body-defining clothes. They used to actually, what they called damp their muslins, but they used to, in order to make the clothes more transparent, they used to put water them down, so when they went in, so, you know... Unsurprisingly, a lot of people got pneumonia and died. Um, no, it's really true. Um, and, and then, you know, we ended up in the Victorian era with, you know, very Again, you know, corsets and crinolines, yeah. and we went back to that and the whole bit. Fashion is armor. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I've always been fascinated with the history of fashion as it relates to other things in the world. But um, it was wartime. Try to remember that the Regency, um, there was a 20-year war that was going on between Napoleon and everybody else, and nobody knew how it was going to come out until Waterloo in 1815 on a Sunday in June. Um, and it could have gone either way. <laughs> right, then. and one of the things that I love about Austen is that she's often criticized for having uh, written novels that reflect nothing of the warfare in her time. And I always say that that is a fallacy of the reader because... She was writing for contemporaries. She didn't have to spell out a lot of things. So when she says something quite simple like uh, Eliza Bennett is sitting down for one of a partner, um, the scarcity of men in the room, you know, obliging her and other young ladies not to dance, it's because there is a scarcity of men in the room. There's a scarcity of men in England. They're all out fighting. And that was implicit uh, in her her work. Um, persuasion, her most obviously warfare-related novel, which centers around the uh, British Navy. Again, you know, if you are reading it today and you actually care about these things, you have to sit down and look up what was an admiral of the white, what was an admiral of the blue. And she understood all of this because she had two brothers who were post-captains. She worried about them constantly. Um, in one of her letters, <laughs> there's this wonderful passage where she's writing to Cassandra because they happen to be apart, but they're in the same area of Kent uh, where her elder brother lived, who was landed and wealthy. And she says, um, it's August, it's 1805. She says, the depredations of the militia men upon the gentlemen's birds uh, is much talked of. Um, and the indignation seems likely to bring about a demonstration of some kind. This isn't a letter. And you read it and you think she's just talking about something to do with shooting birds. Well, actually, what she was talking about was the fact that it was 1805. It was summer called the Great Terror, in which all of Kent was under watch because it was expected that Napoleon would invade. He had assembled a fleet of 300 ships in Boulogne, um, and he was planning to invade England that September. Jane's brother, with whom she was staying, was... Um, 
A justice of the peace of the county, he had all of the evacuation plans for the entire coast. There was a company called the Sea Fensibles, which were militiamen who were guarding Ramsgate, and they were going to actually have a troop movement down to Canterbury, which is where Jane was. And they were going to go through the fields, and they were going to disrupt the grouse shooting in August. And the local gentry were furious. Jane is telling Cassandra this because she is being snarky. She cannot believe that these guys are upset about the shooting when their two brothers are on the blockade in the channel that is protecting the Kentish coast. So there's all this implicit in her work, whether it's in her letters or her books, that displays her knowledge of contemporary events, but she took them for granted and she took for granted that her readers did too. So now when people read them, they see Bridgerton, her novels, but there is so much underlying all of it in the dialogue and the descriptions that implies the reality of Britain in 1811 to 1817. It's important to remember she didn't write historical fiction when she wrote it. No more did Agatha Christie. You know, we look at Agatha Christie now, we think it's historical fiction, but she was writing in real time in the 1930s. You know, it's sort of have to keep up with all that. So I, I think you've done an amazing job writing your way because this project, when you started it, I think, I remember you didn't want to write to the end of Jane's life. You didn't actually want her to die on the page, and she doesn't. Just she doesn't. Spoiler, but, yeah, um, I pulled my but punch. But I thought, you know, every time you'd get closer, I kept thinking, is this the last one? Mm -hmm. And then there would be one more. But this this really is it, though. This is the last one, yes. Um, you, I ran out of Jane. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, there is something poignant in inhabiting someone's mind. I feel like I've, I, I've said this in written pieces that I've been adrift on the sea of Jane's thought for the past 30 years um, because I've immersed myself so much in her language, her letters, and her books. Uh, to know, as I did, that she was coming to the end of her life when she did not know it as a character in my books was a very strange duality to inhabit as a writer. Um, because I was creating an, a landscape in, through which she was moving, um, aware of her destination when she was not. And that's, that's been challenging, um, because you have to balance that foreknowledge yourself, um, with her innocence <laughs> in the character as you're writing it. So that's been a, a fine tuned process. It was easier, obviously, to write the earlier books. But that's something I've said to Barbara for years, that I fundamentally believe series have a certain lifespan. And if you violate its lifespan, you end up writing dead fiction. Um, and I don't think any of us ever wants to do that. So it feels correct, you know, that the series is ending as it is. I'd also point out real quickly that Jane Austen was a pioneer in a way of, of the literary form. The first novel in English, I think, was Samuel Richardson's Pamela, which was, what, 1747 or 49. And because nobody knew how to write a novel, um, he wrote it as a series of letters. It's called an epistolary novel because that solved the whole problem of whose voice you were hearing. It moved the plot forward as the letters moved forward. You know, it was... Um, an excellent device for telling, um, sorry about that, I can't fix it, but it won't come down on you. Um, and Jane wrote an early book called Lady, or an early work called Lady Susan, which is in fact an epistolary novel. It's part of her juvenilia, right? The, the early works. 
It's an early work. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. call it juvenile. Well, but yeah. I'm not sure she was ever a juvenile. <laughs> I think she was, she was such an intelligent person. And if you ever go to Chotton, it's very moving to see this little table and chair kind of in a corner where she wrote. And every time anybody would come, she would gather up her work, right? And kind of. Yeah, there was a creaking floorboard that she asked them not to ever fix right. because she could. The, the floorboard warned her of someone's approach, and she wrote on little chapbooks that she created out of paper that she sewed together and they they have those um right. so there was no privacy she didn't have a study and you know i think about authors today who talk about writing in coffee shops um you know like william can kruger who's you know written in coffee shops forever there used to be a guy that used to write in was it hardy's i can't anyway one of the fast food things um and there was jane you know in the middle of a busy family uh, life and the whole bit you know writing her novels and it wasn't considered it was difficult for a woman to well yeah do that's that. that's the interesting thing um in refusing harris big wither people love that name <laughs> um, uh she was making a really radical choice <clears throat> which was to turn her back on security and she has several of her heroines do that obviously she has eliza bennett do it when uh lizzie refuses mr collins and charlotte instead takes him up and importantly lizzie is 20 when she makes that choice charlotte is 27 and is a much more cynical uh woman on the social scene who of necessity says i have no choice i have to do this i will never have this opportunity again so refusing that jane importantly radically chose a different life. And had she married Harris Bigwither, we would never have known her name. Because her she, books. yeah, because she really, she may have written them, but she would have performed them for family functions, which is how she started out in her writing. She would not have probably sought publication. And publication gave her a really important independence and she cherished it. She would talk all the time in letters about how much she had made on certain books, um, Pride and Prejudice did well, really well for her and went into a second edition. And she also created something um, unique, which was she became essentially her own publisher. In her era, you, the, you didn't just sell your manuscript to a publisher, you sold the copyright to your work. And so... Uh, the publisher owned your copyright, you did not. Which meant that you were essentially paid for the manuscript and, and some sales, but you were not gonna receive royalties for the rest of your life. She did that for her first two published books and then she, with um, uh, Emma, basically decided to pay for the publication, pay the publisher to publish her book and kept the copyright. And that was an important difference. It was something that she, it was very risky in people's minds um, to do that, but it ensured that she made more money. She was very savvy as a business person. Um, and she said, I have made such and such, which of course only makes me want more. Um, but she lived on 50 pounds a year which was um, equivalent of maybe 
$50,000 now. Um, you tend to round up by a factor of 100. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's an interesting testament to her choices. Thank you, ma'am. Sure. Right. Tasha. I have to get my hat. Wait. And we're going to talk about witches. Some people think I am naturally in that role. So here we go. Uh, I All don't right. see a broom anywhere. What? I don't see a broom anywhere. <laughs> I parked it in the back room. Right. So Tasha indeed has written a whole series of books with Lady Emily. And we first meet her, she is a widow. And we have progressed through her adventures, her remarriage, her becoming a mother. We have moved around much of certainly Europe. Um, we've even been to Egypt. And now we're in Scotland. We are indeed, which, you know, always seemed a natural choice. You have to have a Scotland book. You know, every every aristocrat has a friend with a castle in Scotland, right? Right. Well, in this bookstore, Scotland <laughs> really rings true. Um, right. Um, we know a lot more about Scotland than many bookstores might happen to know because of Outlander. Um, right. But um, you you have you like to tie your stories to an earlier uh, narrative track as well as the one that you're writing about with Lady Emily. So Scotland was an absolute hotbed of witch hunts, wasn't it? It, it was, and I, I knew that, but I did not know until I started doing the research just how brutal they were. They were killing witches at a faster rate than any other place in Europe, which really shocked me. I expected more from the Scots. I was a bit I mean, disappointed a, in them. They had an actual witch hunter. I mean, it was a real they job. They did. No, he and he he was self-styled. He he. I'm now just I'm losing. What what do you call himself? I can't remember now. I'm blanking on it. What did he call was the, it? Witch finder. It was witch finder. But didn't he? He was like the great witch. It wasn't great. But he uh, was an absolute charlatan. He he was. He had no. Well, obviously, he had no qualifications. Um, but he, one of his big things was going around with the. A, a pin, a, like a blade, like a sharp stiletto kind of blade that he would poke the witches with because, you know, a witch wouldn't feel the pain, you know, and wouldn't cry out. But he had a hollow, it had a hollow handle so that he would poke you with it and it would just go in. So, I, I mean, I, I think if it were me, I would have just shrieked anyway, wouldn't, wouldn't you, as soon as you knew it was near you? Probably. Uh, but there's something almost Monty Python-esque about it. You know, if she weighs more than a duck or... <laughs> Um, but it's absolutely horrific that how many thousands of people died because this guy said, yep, she's a witch. I've done the tests. She's a witch. It was a largely 17th century. I mean, it did go longer, but um, in Scotland anyway, very much a 17th century thing. And the Scots took to Protestantism in a more radical way than many people did. They they went into Calvinism and, you know, things. Maybe it's the climate um, that, in, you know, the sort of bleak outlook. Yeah. But um, the witch finder, I mean, it carried over here to, you know, to Salem um, in this country. And, you know, it's a it's a terrible thing. To, it is. And I, I there's no defense to being accused of being a witch. No, because if you try to defend yourself, that proves you're a witch. If you don't try to defend yourself, well, obviously you're a witch. I mean, you can't win. I I wondered while I was doing the research if part of the reason that it it 
held in Scotland is that you do have such a rich culture of mythology and legend, and you've got all these mysterious creatures and things. So that you had, as people were getting more, you know, more virulent about Protestantism, were they more afraid of the, worried about these people within the society who were still believing that Kelpies might be real? And, you know, if it, if it was just nearer to the surface. Well, yeah, and I mean, a lot of witches were really wise women, women who understood herbs and other things at a time when, you know, medicine was <clears throat> certainly not very advanced. And so, um, you know, and also there was, I think, there's all that thing about women and pregnancy, and well, we won't go into all that, but anyhow, um, but in this story, we are in what, uh, 1905, when Emily and Colin and the three children, their twins and the boy they've adopted, go to Scotland to visit their friend Jeremy the Duke. That's right, because Jeremy... I mean, anyone who's read any of these books knows that, of course, Jeremy has a castle in Scotland because he looks really good in a kilt. So, you know, that's that's how Jeremy operates. But we get there because at the end of the Egypt book, Henry, one of Emily's three sons, who is just trouble through and through. The other two are quite well behaved and respectable young gentleman, but Henry is just always causing trouble, and he was quite angry at his parents for not taking him to Egypt. Um, I think Emily had told him, or somebody had told him, that no one under the age of 10 was allowed in the tombs, so he accepted the decision initially, but then he found out that was not true um, and was trying to get to Egypt, and of course can convince Jeremy, who is, you know, although he claims to be the most useless man in England, was apparently useful if you're an eight-year-old, seven-year-old boy who's trying to get to Egypt. He can help you with that. Um, but Henry learned that Jeremy, having a private menagerie, as lots of aristocrats did in the day, um, had a Nile crocodile in the menagerie and thought that, well, if you're going to Egypt, you're going to bring your crocodile, right? I mean, that's just would be uncivilized not to. So we meet Cedric the crocodile very briefly at the end of the Egyptian book. Uh, and the Scottish book has to be Scotland because that is the place where Jeremy's menagerie is. And Henry has concerns about the, the nature of the care that the animals are being given. So that's how we get to Scotland. You don't normally expect a crocodile in Scotland, right? But um, it's a presence. In it the is. Book. And, and it, actually, the, the whole... Um, inspiration be behind the weird animals coming to Scotland actually comes from Andrew's mother. She had, was it a cousin or her uncle? Because her uncle was out at sea, you know, an Englishman in out at sea. And whenever he would come back to Britain, he would bring exotic animals from wherever he had been at sea and give them to her his, her her mother, right? And so there were all these wonderful stories she would tell about being with her mother on the train with a box with, you know, a monkey in it or whatever, and they would go take it to the zoo in London and, and give it to them because what are you going to do if you don't have a castle? You know, if you have a castle, that's a different matter entirely because you have a space for a menagerie. But yeah, so that's that's where I got the idea for animals, strange animals coming to Br to Britain. So if you have a castle and you're in Scotland, then um, shooting and hunting is going to be a part of the environment. And so you have a gamekeeper, right? And mm -hmm. the body in this particular book is, in fact, the gamekeeper, right? Right. Which 
Emily, who has a penchant for finding dead bodies. Um, anyway, they find the dead body, and so there, there's the mystery of who is the who is the gamekeeper and why is he dead. But the backstory, I think, you know, there's a really brutal backstory in this. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, when I was was doing starting the research, and I was trying to figure out what I want. Well, actually, I I knew more about the second timeline than I knew about the first when I started because because it was that story that really drove the narrative and the ideas for me. I I read a several books and some a couple academic articles about um, people of color in Tudor Britain. And there's a story about um, King James gets given as a gift, as you do, two young women from Africa. Well, you know. And I just was, so, that's so horrifying. And then we, we all know that slavery has been a thing throughout human history, but this idea that you've got these two young women, here, have a gift, have a couple people. Um, but the thing that struck me as, I don't know, extra insidiously creepy about it is that they were brought into the royal household and dressed up and treated like courtiers, but they were really, they were kind of like pets. And you see people even now kind of saying, oh, but you know, they had really nice dresses and they're living in the castle and they're like hanging out with the prince. I mean, hey, you know, what's wrong with this? And this idea that it makes it less bad because no one's beating them you know, it just made me really start thinking about this idea of what it means to be free and what it means to be a slave. And so I, I wanted to explore that further. And so I have a character, um, Tan Tasnam, who everyone in Scotland calls Tansy because, you know, Tasnam is way too hard to try to figure out how to pronounce. Um, but she is, she is kidnapped from, she's Tunisian, she's from Tunis, and she from an educated family. She's an educated young woman, but she is kidnapped on the street one day by a man who essentially uses her as a sex slave um, until he's bored, which you know doesn't take very long, and he sells her to someone else who then gives her as a wedding gift to his friend's new wife, who, being the enlightened woman that she is, frees her, which, sure, great, but what is this young woman with no means supposed to do? She's in the Scottish Highlands with no one she knows, and she has no way to get home. It's true. She has no money and no independence. But actually, while I think her situation is terrible, I think the situation of the woman she was given to, a young woman who is married an older man who dies unexpectedly, suddenly she becomes a widow, and her husband's son throws her out. Not only does he throw her out, he throws her out with nothing. I mean, barely the clothes on her back. Normally, a woman got to, a widow got to live in something called a dower house or some kind of accommodation. He just threw her out into right. the cold, and and the young Moorish woman goes with her. Right. And so, you know, you've really written a survival story about them. And then one of them, inevitably, because we're in the 17th century, is accused of being a witch. So, I mean, it's a really terrible story. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard. Congratulations, <laughs> Tasha. Heartwarming entertainment for the whole family. You know, Lady Emily's stories are generally lighter than that. But, you know, so 
I, I think what it underlines is is that women just had no rights at all. You know, they had no property rights. They had no. Um, you would expect that the widow of a relatively wealthy man would, you know, have some sort of income, would have a home, um, and obviously she didn't have much in the way of a of a lawyer who could have drawn up a marriage settlement. Uh, marriage settlements made provisions for widows, uh, but she obviously didn't have one. Right. That's so when right. I say terrible, I don't mean that it's you know. <laughs> I didn't mean it terrible in that sense. I, I meant, I, I just, it's hard to imagine being so powerless and having, having been thrown from a life where you would be completely unprepared for that. And unprepared because society did not allow you to become prepared. You know, you were in a society where you, it wasn't as if she could have said, well, I'm going to learn how to run the estate and I'm going to take on things of my own and I'm going to have an income. She she had no power to even do that when she still was married before her husband died. The one thing she wants to go back and reclaim for herself are her books. He didn't even let her take her books from the library. And we won't go into all that. But I, I did think that, you know, I like the fact that. It was books that yeah. that she valued. She didn't want to go back for her jewelry or the you know whatever else was in the castle. She just wanted to retrieve her own books. Well, she does have a first folio, so oh, okay. right. of course, a first folio then wasn't what we think of it now. I was say, did you know? Did I mean? I don't know that at the time that was recognized as some kind of economic advantage. No, no. Right. So back to like we can't talk anymore about that part of the story. Back to Lady Emily. What's happening there? Well, I you know. I think one thing that was very fun in this book was having the boys on the page because usually, you know, they were too young and they, they, they're now old enough that they can come and, and be part of the story. I mean, not all the time, not every book, but it's, it was fun to have the dynamic Colin and Emily with the three boys. Colin is a far more indulgent parent than Emily is. Um, so I guess there's a way in which that piece of the story, you're seeing more family, you're seeing their family, and then you're also seeing some of Jeremy's family, his great aunts, who um, who are holed up in the medieval wing of the castle, and they're, they're playing Middle Ages, basically. Well, vaguely. They, they'd like to think they're playing Middle Ages, at least. Um, and, yeah, they were they were fun. You see another side of Jeremy. Jeremy is slightly less useless. In fact, Emily speculates that he may not be the most useless man in Scotland, and she's not sure how to how to handle that. So Jeremy's role is, or wish anyway, is never to marry, and so the whole question of who will become the next duke is kind of off the table. Um, but tell us a little bit about Colin, because I mentioned earlier that he is one of those kind of unregistered, um, unacknowledged secret agents. Absolutely, because you have all these, you know, it's the, those that during the empire. Um, you did have these gentlemen with a private income. It, you know, you see the end of this era with James Bond, honestly, where, I mean, he is working for the government, but you have a gentleman of private means who is going to go around the world and quietly take care of things and be taken care of very discreetly. Um, I want to, I mean, I, I set, you know, when you're, you're writing a book, you're setting things up deliberately. And I, I, 
created Colin that way because I didn't want Emily to always just have to, oh, look, I've gone on vacation and someone else is dead. You know, <laughs> um, sometimes it can be that they're going someplace because of Colin's work. And then you can get some tension between Emily and Colin because Colin can't even tell her what is going on with his work. So there's always a little tension with that between them as a result of his work. Um, but he is that, that quintessential English gentleman who has a very keen sense of noblesse oblige, a very clear idea of right and wrong, but he doesn't always agree with what the British government thinks is right and wrong. Right, and he's transitioned from being an agent of Queen Victoria to an agent of Edward VII, because uh, Victoria died in 1901, and this series started, wait, was it 1890? Yeah. Right, so you've moved I forward. I don't know how that ever happened. Like, I never thought Victoria would die. No, and they I don't think anybody either. then did either. But, you know, it was kind of like how surprised we all were when Elizabeth died, you know. Was, I was sure she was going to be a centenarian. Okay, I'll right. tell you, I totally knew she was dying. Ask Andrew. I put a news alert for the BBC on my phone. I have no notifications on my phone turned on, but I said to him, I know the Queen is dying soon. And about three months before she died. Yeah. Yeah. Turned out she had multiple myeloma. Yeah, they finally released that as the cause of death. So if you looked at the last pictures of her, you could see the IV marks in her hands. So it was kind of, you know, but I think she kind of lost the will to live when Philip died, but that's just me being a romantic. But, you know, they'd been together since she was, she'd been in love with him since she was, well, like 13 or something, 13 or 14, and I don't think she had a lot of wish to go on from that. So Francine mentioned about, um, and I thought beautifully, about how you would write a book when you knew what was going to happen and yet you didn't really want to bring it forward on the page. You're in 1905 with some young men, and we know that 1914 is going to come. Are you going to stop before you get there? I don't want them to go to war. Me either. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not interested in that. And part of the reason I picked the period I picked is that I find it, what you said resonated with me so much. There is such poignancy to knowing that they are marching toward that war that is just going to devastate their entire society and they have no clue. And we know. And we know. Um, no. So, and the thing is, just given the way that I set it up in the first place, the age of the boys, they would be just the right age to be going off to the trenches. I don't want to do that. Yeah, but you don't, you don't have, one of the great things about writing historical fiction is that nobody has to age in real time, right? Because they're already dead. So you can just kind of, you know, move along to the next month and You can have 37 books set in 1912. <laughs> right. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, Boyd and Beth, you're, you're in 1351. Your characters didn't have to acknowledge the Black Death, which wiped out, what, at least a third of Europe, right? Wasn't it? At least a third, I think, died in that, in that plague year. Um, there's a wonderful series uh, written by a British author, name which is out of my head. But one of the things he talked about was that um, the, the universities were so decimated by death that they used to poach each other's students, the people from Cambridge would go to Oxford and try to steal some students and vice versa just to keep the, the universities open because there weren't, you know, enough people um, 
involved. So Brother Michael, I can remember his Brother Michael from Cambridge was the series hero. I love those. Oh, Susanna Gregory. Yep. There's an example of old age when it comes back to you about two minutes later. But um, but there were so many consequences of, of the Black Death. But, you know, I thought you did well to move to 1351 Italy, where by then, I mean, it'd be like writing, it'd be like writing in 1918, knowing the flu epidemic was coming and what would happen. Right, but you're not anticipating the Black Death, you know, so there I, we are. I love those wonderful little windows in Florence where they would serve the wine. So you would put your money and then they would, and you would step away and they would open the window and put a glass of wine so that you could have your wine. Because, you know, look, you, it's a plague, but you got to have your wine, right? We have priorities. I mean, different than having food delivered during COVID. Sure. <laughs> or, you know, stopping sure. to get takeout at the at the door. Sure. Whatever. Anyway, um, we can't say much more without about spoiling the books. Uh, sure. uh, so we have a murder mystery in 1905 with a dead gamekeeper and what's all that. And then we have the fate of these two young women, because um, they are young, they are. Um, in 16, whatever it is, and what's going to happen to them. Uh-huh. So... When you're writing a two-track story like that, do you write one and then the other, or do you go tick-tock back no, and forth while you're writing? No, I tick-tock back and forth, and I have no, I generally have no idea how it's coming together. And especially with this one, I kept thinking, oh, I totally am. I feel like, to me, it's like, I, it reminds, so when I started writing, my son was three and a half. And when your kids are little, and you're, you know, they want you to tell them stories all the time, right? And you don't get to like say, okay, well, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just do an outline here. And we're gonna think about the narrative arc. You just have to keep talking. And my son just loved me telling him stories, and he would say, "Mommy, mommy, don't hit pause, play." <laughs> and I don't know, it, it kind of trained me to develop, or just not even develop, but listen to my instinct, like that you feel like, oh, we need something with this character to happen now and now this needs to happen and if I try to spell it out in advance it is so tediously boring no one would ever want to read one of these books if I I, they would just it'd be horrible but I I can't know what happens on page 137 until I write page 136 more or less I mean obviously I know who the characters are going to be and I know what the setting is and I know that in the end it will all work out um like a Bollywood movie uh, but but other than that I don't know how I don't know how creative minds work differently I right I know it's totally. a, it's always an interesting discussion about whether people plot or whether they I'm sorry I'm jealous of people who can plot because I'll mm-hmm. sit there sometimes and just be like Dear Lord, how is this going to work out? You know, there's an old New Yorker cartoon that it's scientists with a big chalkboard and they've got all these, you know, complicated formulas on it. It's like step one, step two, step three is a miracle occurs and then you have the solution. And that's how I always feel like I'm waiting for step three, the miracle to occur. So one of the joys of reading this series, which I have truly loved and read in real time as Tasha has written it, is all the different places we get to go. So we've been in Egypt, we've been in France, we've been in Vienna, now we're in Scotland, we've been in England. Where have I missing? Oh, we've been in, no, Santorini, wasn't it? Santorini and St. Petersburg. And St. Petersburg, right. Thank you. <laughs> Lots of exotic places. Yeah. So um, I have to say that Tasha is an inveterate world traveler, so it makes it 
all kinds of fun, right? It does. I, I mean, I so recognize the research trip. We were talking about this a little last night where it's just a great it's a great thing to get to go to these amazing places and think about the history and, and figure oh, out Pompeii. Right. Pompeii, yeah, Pompeii. That was right. fun. That was very fun. Yeah. Um, I just finished Bavaria. Next year's book oh, is the is Bavarian, Bavarian Alps. How fun. The secondary story is Mad King Ludwig. I've actually been there, done all those cancels. Are you going to debate whether he committed suicide or was drowned? No, not not exactly. I mean, it's, it's barely an mentioned. It's unsolved mystery. It's... Did somebody drown him in the lake? He was about to bankrupt the kingdom of Bavaria. He was also the guy that made Richard Wagner possible for a long time. So mm -hmm. I'd been alive. I would have killed him right then. <laughs> um, so I love his music, and I think the words are just horrifying. So there we are. Yeah. Right. I once actually, I'll finish this, I once actually went to Milan for a week with an opera touring company, specifically because I had never in a lifetime of loving opera seen the ring cycle. And I thought, if I go to La Scala and Daniel Berenboim is conducting, this has got to be me and the ring cycle. And I can't tell you how I hated it. <laughs> because the words were on, you know, if I had just close my eyes and listen to the music because the music is beautiful and I, I think Wagner's music is amazing but it really is better not to read the not to read the lyrics uh, have so, you read the letters between him and Ludwig yes yeah, yeah well, Ludwig was an, a closeted gay and that oh, was he, a no, big he, part he, of he our problem that was a right? big part of he's actually quite a tragic figure right. because he built, yeah. he built the Disneyland castle you know, Schwanstein. if you go there, yeah, um, Hoch Weinstein and, and other, he was a builder, which is one reason he was bankrupting Bavaria. Um, but the, the architect, he was like, you know, he was exactly like the Regency. He was like George IV, yeah. was a great builder and a great art critic, um, you know, art collector, rather, um, and maybe critic. Not a lot of interest in running Bavaria, no. though. No, George IV didn't have a lot of interest yeah. in governing England either, but there we are. Anyway, I think it's time that we take a break, because I know it's hard for you to sit in these chairs for too long. We have a lovely selection of shortbread and other things. Bathrooms right around the corner. Why don't we take 10 minutes, and then all the authors will be up here, and you can ask them questions, and I have books to give away. But wait, I forgot one thing before we do. Francie? I could not believe it when I opened up the New York Times book review this morning. No, wait. And I, I'm going to read you this little thing. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the earliest known person to mention a sponge cake in writing was Jane Austen. <laughs> Jane is also, ready for this, our earliest source for these words. Doorbell, sprawly, fragmented, and irrepressible. There's a new book out called The Dictionary People, and um, and I have it here in the store, and I'll, I brought this for you. Of course. One of the things I love about Jane is that she uses words that if I used them as Jane, I would be excoriated for. Um, baseball. Jane Austen refers to baseball in North Angarabi. She uses the word depressed in Pride and Prejudice, which most people would argue was not in the lexicon until the late 19th century, but it was. Uh, and one of my favorites is electrifying. She uses the word electrifying <laughs> way before anything was electrified. So she is a great, great source. 
So anyway, um, give us a few minutes, then enjoy yourself, have something to eat. Um, there's um, drinks over here in the cabinet, or there may be drinks back. No, there's nice tea back there. Um, Ten minutes, and then if you have questions for the authors and want to participate in the giveaway, come back to your seat. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.